This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Take Me Home on Pet Life Radio. I am your host, Angela Marcus. Thank you for joining us. Today we are going to be speaking with Crystal Moreland and Kate McFall. Crystal is the California State Director and Kate is the Florida State Director for the Humane Society of the United States. You may recall we spoke with Kristen Tulo, the Pennsylvania State Director for the HSUS, a few weeks ago. At that time, Kristen shared the miraculous story of Libre, a puppy that was rescued by a good Samaritan and saved from the brink of death, who then went on to serve as an inspiration for the new monumental animal cruelty laws established in 2017 in the Keystone State. Kristen's interview took place right around Election Day, which is now marked as a pivotal day for a significant number of animals in California and in Florida. Just prior to Election Day, hashtag YesOn12 and hashtag YesOn13 was all over my social media feeds, and I was waiting with bated breath and fingers crossed to see what would happen with these two groundbreaking animal initiatives. The two people responsible for leading the charge on these measures, Crystal and Kate, are with us today and will give us the background of how Proposition 12 and Amendment 13 came to be and why they represent such a huge step forward in the fight for stronger legislation for the animals we care for. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with Crystal and Kate after a message from our sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Hanover Square Press and the secret language of cats. How to understand your cat for a better, happier relationship by Suzanne Schatz. Have you ever wondered what your cat is saying? In the secret language of cats, Schatz offers a crash course in cat phonics to help you crack the cat code. Perfect for the fans of The Lion in the Living Room and the Inner Life of Animals. The Secret Language of Cats by Suzanne Schatz is available for purchase today. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com Welcome back to Take Me Home on Pet Life Radio. With us now is Crystal Moreland and Kate McFall. Thank you guys for joining us today. Thanks for having us. This past election day, the two of you, your teams, animal advocates all across the country prevailed with two decisive and historic victories. One for farm animals in California and another for greyhounds in Florida. Crystal, I'd like to start with you and talk about Proposition 12, also known as the Prevention of Cruelty to Farm Animals Act. Can you give us some history and define Proposition 12 for the listeners? Absolutely. So Proposition 12 is an upgrade to California's current farm animal protection laws that have been on the books, most historically Proposition 2, which many of you will recall and were likely involved in such a historic battle that that was. It was really the first ballot initiative of its kind to intend cage-free standards. Proposition 2 applied to the animals raised in the state of California, to egg-laying hens, veal calves, and mother pigs. And so 10 years later, when we looked at what we could do to really make meaningful and impactful change 
for farm animals, we decided that it was time to upgrade Proposition 2 and not only look at it from the lens of what we could do for animals in the state of California, but leverage California's marketplace to be able to apply these upgrades for cage-free standards to all animals, regardless of where they are raised, if they are being sold in the California marketplace. So that's what we've done. It's the world's strongest farm animal protection law. It clearly defines cage-free standards for those three species, egg-laying hens, both liquid and shell eggs, veal calves, and mother pigs. And it also provides them enrichment. So not only will they have these new Avery or group housing requirements, but birds will be able to perch and dust bathe and do the natural behaviors they were intended to do. I mean, this is incredible. I'm on the entire other side of the country in Pennsylvania, and I have to say I'm a little naive to the laws even in my own neck of the woods here. Uh, I was fortunate enough to speak with Kristen before, and she educated me in a whole host of different things. But it's just interesting for our listeners to know that, you know, the animals that we consume, or if you are, you know, if you're consuming animals on a daily basis that, you know, you might not think about the conditions they're living in. And and this sort of legislation is really changing not only how these animals are living, but, you know, how they're living on a day-to-day basis, but their behavior, their ability to, like you just said, dust bathe. I mean, people don't think about that. How critical is that for the quality of life while these animals are being confined? Well, and for their quality of life, that also translates to the safety of the food that people are buying. You know, one of the issues that we see in these extreme confinement systems for whatever kind of animal, but to be able to give hens specifically, the salmonella rates are just astronomical in cage confinement. And it's because animals are stressed out. They uh, break their immune systems down. They are so densely packed into these systems that one sick bird infects thousands just in their sheer proximity to each other. So it doesn't only upgrade the quality of life for the animals, but it provides a much safer food system. And what does the the rest of the landscape look like in the United States when when you're talking about this type of legislation? Is this, I mean, I heard you say that it's, you know, it's groundbreaking. I mean, we all know it's groundbreaking, Mm -hmm. but what does it look like in the other states across the country? Well, I think the unique thing here, and you touched on this in saying that, you know, being on the other side of the country, you were able to hear so much about Proposition 12. The whole world was watching. California has the fifth largest economy. And when California makes a change that is applicable to its marketplace, it does affect everyone. And really, the thing that I'm most proud of with this law is we've been having hundreds of cage-free commitments from companies, whether it's McDonald's or Walmart or Costco. There's been all sorts of pledges made for cage-free confinement on egg-laying hens and pork most frequently. And we needed a law to be able to codify these commitments and really make them come to life. They're nothing more than a piece of paper if there isn't a law on the books that requires it to go through. And one of the problems that we have been seeing is that the cage-free systems kind of just stalled out. No producers were wanting to move too far in one direction because their competitors weren't doing that either. So Proposition 12 will really solidify this as the new standard because you can't really sustain and having multiple supply chains for different regions of the United States. And now both California and Massachusetts require that products coming into their state need to meet their standards for egg-laying hens, veal cows 
steakhouse and pork. So it's really meaningful. It's a, a huge shift for the industry and what a lot of consumers want it, but also farmers and corporations that this was now the new standard and they could proceed with their business in a very successful way. Yeah, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. You mentioned the competition. I mean, like in all businesses, these farmers and the people who are raising animals for food, they have to compete. Otherwise, they're going to be out of business, right? So even if you have people who want to do the right thing, who want to have a more humane housing, if they can't do it in a way that makes financial sense, I can understand why there was such a challenge. But by, by laying this groundwork and creating, like you said, a standard that everyone has to adhere to, it really levels the playing field. You know, not to get too much into the weeds here, but I, I'm curious, I, I, you know, I don't know that everyone out there listening is really going to have an understanding of things like gestation crates. Yeah, I heard you say liquid eggs. I'd like to get just a little more details. Like, can you tell everybody listening, what is a gestation crate? What is that? You know, paint them a picture if you would. Well, absolutely. And I'm glad that you pointed that out. Um, gestation crates are the most common form of uh, cage confinement for mother pigs. And it is a crate so small that the animals can only take one step forward and one step back. And they are in this cage the entire duration of their pregnancy and you know, then turned right into uh, another cycle of being pregnant. These farm systems in cage confinement industries are really so industrialized. For egg-laying hens, typically you can take about two-thirds of a piece of paper, and that's the legal definition of space required for an egg-laying hen. And we know that that's inhumane. It, it's just wrong to cram animals in cages so small that they cannot stand up, turn around, and extend their limbs. As I mentioned before, it creates not only a miserable life for these animals, but it can taint our food supply. It's not economically savvy either. The egg industry's own studies show that being able to give these cage-free conditions really only costs producers one to two cents more. So it just makes sense all around. It's a win for the animals, it's a win for the farmers, and it's a win for consumers. So let me ask this too, because I, I see this term all the time, you know, in my local grocery store, you see the cage-free, cage-free. And what does that really mean as compared to a battery cage, for example? I'm familiar with battery cages. I know what they are. I don't know that the listeners do. So maybe if you could tell them what that is too. But what does it really mean when you say you're buying eggs that are cage-free? Well, to start off with a battery cage, to be able to compare the old to the new, a battery cage is a very tiny little cage that um, is about the size of a microwave, and uh, six to eight birds are jammed in that for their mm -hmm. whole lives. And um, that is kind of the industrialization of just being able to churn eggs out of these birds all day long. It takes about 24 hours for every egg to be laid. So when you think about the number of birds that is required to supply America's food system, it's incredibly disturbing. And that's why these are just stacked from floor to ceiling, just cages top to bottom. And it, typically you are required to have a gas mask to be able to be in some of these farming systems because there's just so many animals and the ammonia smell is not tolerable. And so imagine these animals living their whole lives in this sort of system. The new Avery systems that are what you're getting with a cage-free egg are multi-tiered levels. So the birds can freely roam around the barn. They are able to perch on different levels. There are nest boxes in there where they still can 
traditionally go field to lay an egg. The ground floor has systems to be able to move the manure. And, you know, like I said, they have the dust bathing options. And it was remarkable for me the first time that I went into one of these cage-free system Avery housing facilities. When you go into an, an egg farm, the biosecurity is very intense. These birds have not had exposure with the outside world. So they need to be protected that the whole flock doesn't get sick. So we were going through and, you know, the CFO of this organization, oh, he opened the door and I'm expecting that we're still a couple of layers deep before we're actually getting to the birds. And I turned to my right and just kind of jumped out of being startled that all of these eyes were looking upon me. And never did I hear before opening that door any noise from the birds. They're not clucking at the, you know, battery cage facilities can be so loud. It's, it's hard to even focus because the animals are stressed. These birds, they were silent. There was no smell to it. We didn't need gas masks. I was holding the birds. They were very curious about us and pecking at our feet and you know, fluttering around from the different systems. And it was just a remarkable difference that I'll never really be able to to give that pure example of what it's like to be in the cage-free confinement system into the Avery. It's a dramatic upgrade in the quality of their lives. Well, I mean, you, that's just wonderful. I, I, you're painting such a good picture for our listeners because they have to understand that this is such a critical movement for the animals in California and really the start of something, I think, in the way that things are moving in this country and the way that we treat our animals. I have to ask, did you have anybody who, I mean, of course you did, right? But who were, you know, opposing this legislation? Who was fighting against this type of legislation? Well, anytime that you're shocking something again with the marketplace in California, you have a lot of players get involved in it because California does have a cascade effect to the rest of the country. We certainly had industry groups that were advocating against us. They did not want to uh, have to make the upgrade in the system. You know, why change things over when you can continue business the way that you already have things formatted? So we fought those industry groups. We unfortunately Unfortunately, you know, just to put it frankly out there, had opposition with the animal community in some ways of the measure not going far enough. And that to me is just another reason to reiterate that this wasn't incremental change to a, a transformation or this was not incremental steps to a transformational gain. It was honestly profound steps. The quality of life for these animals that are in these systems, Prop 12 means everything. Um, I said it earlier, this is the world's strongest farm animal protection law. And it's something really everyone can get around behind because the old cage-free confinement is just it's out with Prop 12. It, this sets the new standard, and it's something that everyone should be quite proud of. Absolutely. And, and tell me, how did you, when you start this process, I remember reading something, um, maybe from one of the links you shared me or just some of my own research, that this started with a signature goal. You know, oh. like I always like to talk about how can people get involved, people who care about this, how do they get involved? How do they know what to look for when they, they want to be a part of an initiative like this? Ballot initiatives are a very unique tool that we have to be able to make change for animals. It's a really a fascinating process, and our success rate of what we've been able to achieve at the ballot box should not obscure how difficult these measures are to pass. Every state has a signature gathering requirement that you have to get certified signatures of the constituents of that state 
to be able to qualify to bring this forward to the ballot box. In California, we needed over 600,000 signatures. We were able to surpass that goal, hitting a little over 663,000 signatures. You have a limited time frame to be able to do it to further complicate the process. You have 180 days in California to do that, and everyone has to sign on their respective counties. It's really just such a, a remarkable testament to the volunteers and everyone that was able to make this happen, the dedication that they had for these just remarkable victories in the movement. Because the signature gathering phase is, is definitely something that you need everybody, boots on the ground, working nights and weekends and, you know, just being able to hit all those long lines and festivals to make this happen. Then once you qualify for the measure, there's a number of ways that folks can remain involved in in shepherding this forward to election day. And that is, you know, whether it's hosting house parties to be able to educate your family and friends the importance of a ballot initiative, why it's meaningful to you, being able to raise money. These are very expensive endeavors. Ballot initiatives, you know, there is just because they're citizen driven does not mean that there's any discount when it comes to TV. In a state like California, it proposes a unique challenge, just the sheer size of this. You have to be able to go on the airways. Campaigns have also transcended to having such a huge presence in the digital space. And so volunteers that are passionate about these things, utilize your social media platforms. That has a huge change. You know, every person that you're able to educate about an animal issue on the ballot box, they'll be able to do the same to 10 more people. And that's that's how you win campaigns is word of mouth, digital strategy, fundraising. It's something that volunteers and advocates, no matter where you live, can be involved in making those changes. You know, that was just put so succinctly. And I think it really does. I mean, I started this conversation talking about how on my social media feeds, I was I was sharing these things, hashtag yes on 12. And, and I had quite a few people say, what is that? What are you talking about? And especially in my in Pennsylvania, because it wasn't something that was going to be directly affecting us. But in a lot of ways, I, I guess it is. Well, you know, if you're out there listening and you're thinking, wow, this really means a lot to me. I like learning about this. Get involved. Visit the HSUS.org. You can find your local representative representative and help by sharing the word on social media and just talking to your friends and family, like Crystal said. So thank you, Crystal, and to all the volunteers who worked for months to mobilize these millions of voters in favor of Proposition 12. We're going to take a short break now and hear a message from our sponsor, and then we're going to come back and speak with Kate, who's going to talk about some animals that are a little bit closer to our hearts, maybe, or maybe in our beds, some dog-related issues. So we'll be right back after this. Does your dog itch, scratch, stink, or shed like crazy? Come to Dynavite for help. Order a 90-day supply of Dynavite. Pick up two bottles of Liquor Chops, get the third bottle free. New improved Liquor Chops with omega-6, omega-3, vitamin E, and now six extra direct-fed microbials. Even better for the digestive tract and immune system. And dogs love it. Try Liquor Chops. Buy two, get one free. This is Henry Lukasiewicz for Dynavite. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. 
Welcome back to Take Me Home on Pet Life Radio. We're going to continue our conversation now with Kate McFall, the Florida State Director for the Humane Society of the United States. Thanks for joining us, Kate. Sure. Glad to be here. Yeah. So I've got to say, first of all, I love greyhounds. They are one of the coolest breeds of dogs that I've ever met. I don't have one. I think maybe I'm going to get one in the near future. Um, I need another dog. Like, don't, my husband hopefully is not listening to this. <laughs> but, but anyways, so yeah, let's talk about Amendment 13. Similar to what Crystal did for us. Can you tell us, I mean, just to, to give the listeners a little background here in Florida on Election Day, voters passed by nearly a 69% vote, a measure to ban greyhound racing known as Amendment 13. So can you give us some history and the definition of the Amendment 13? Sure. Well, truly, the 69% was unbelievable. So exciting. And uh, this was a a really big moment. So the the history here, Amendment 13 was a phase out of Greyhound Racing in Florida by the end of 2020. So it's a 26-month, a little over two-year phase out. The history is the humane community led by the Humane Society of the United States and Great 2K USA, we have been fighting for greyhound protection in Florida for a decade, minimum a decade. We've had bill after bill, year after year, that decoupling. So in Florida, the law says for the gambling operations, in order to operate your profitable gambling, you know, poker rooms or whatever kind of gambling is permitted by law, you must have live racing. A certain number of performances, which is eight races as a performance, but a certain number of performances a year, and it varied from track to track. So picture this, it's raining, everybody's inside doing the poker room or betting, gambling as they as they want to, and no one is outside watching the dogs, but they have to, by law, run around in a circle and risk mm. injury and death while people are inside. Simply to operate the inside, they have to have their dogs racing outside. It makes no sense. And people would ask me this, well, it just doesn't make sense. They almost wouldn't believe you. And But that was the law that the two were coupled. So we fought to decouple, to break, take away that mandate for years and years and so many years unsuccessfully. And the reason it hadn't passed in the legislature is not because the support wasn't there, but because this issue got wrapped up in the bigger gaming issue, which is entirely different. Big money, as you can imagine, the gaming lobbyists would use us as a bargaining chip because people love dogs. And this was a popular measure and it makes sense financially. I'll talk about the financial aspect of this in a minute. But we couldn't get it across the finish line because it got wrapped up in other gaming issues. So this came to us. Unlike uh, California, we didn't have to collect signatures. Our hero, our champion, Senator Tom Lee, who's a, a wonderful, wonderful leader, he was a, a member of the CRC. So I'll, I'll explain that too, because I know many states don't have this. It's the Constitution Revision Commission, which is created. They're appointed. Commissioners are appointed every 20 years. So they form this body of leaders, of commissioners, and they, it's much like bills in the legislature. They have proposals that they vote and amend or however they choose. And those that make it out of that commission go on the ballot, on the statewide ballot that fall, that November. So again, this meets, this group meets every 20 years. (laughs) Really unbelievable. It's unreal. That's unbelievable. I had no idea about that. Right. So we didn't have the, the signature gathering aspect. We had to work hard, really hard going through the CRC process, but we made it. We had incredible leaders with commissioners, you know, Tom Lee, Brett Tutchin, and, and Don Gates really led the charge. So this made it onto the ballot. You can imagine how excited we were. And that's how we know that the public cares about dogs. Certainly, as you said, this is a little closer to our to our home life, to our day-to-day life than other issues, although all equally important. But this one really hits home with, with so many Floridians and nationwide. The other real, there's so many interesting pieces about Amendment 13, but this really was an, a national campaign, even though it really was Florida. 
but we know that two thirds of the Greyhound racing industry is in Florida. 11 out of the 17 tracks nationwide are here in Florida. So really this is two thirds of the industry. We knew that if we got this passed and took out Greyhound racing in the state of Florida, it would pretty much take out two thirds of the industry. And what would be left of the NGA, the National Greyhound Association, would just be a fraction of itself. That would be a victory for the dogs. Yeah, and and then you're setting the yeah, and you're setting the example. Then I mean, if you can get the majority of these tracks, these racetracks shut down, I mean, you, you have to believe that the rest are going to follow. You know, one thing, you know, just going back to the thing of sort of being closer to home, and these you know dogs live in our bed. I've heard a lot of people in conversations when I was doing you know my sharing of hashtag yes on thirteen and talking to people. I was really excited about this initiative because, like I said, I love greyhounds. A lot of people to me, it was like really surprising. Like educated, smart people say to me, "Oh no, greyhounds, they're so." well taken care of when they're racing greyhounds like they're like race horses they're just so well taken care of i mean come on can you please dispel this myth once and for all yes uh, they're not the same they are treated significantly differently and they're less expensive from that angle in terms of horses are a bigger financial commitment they're it's way cheaper to dispose or euthanize a dog and get another one than to treat a broken leg or, or anything else any other issue they are certainly not treated the same there's so many more of them and most importantly, in terms of the big picture, Greyhound Racing is losing money in Florida. One to 3.3 million lost every year in Florida. Wow. So as a taxpayer, you're standing there scratching your head saying, what? This really doesn't make sense. Now that now this on top of the other coupling mandate that taxpayers, the state expends more money regulating Greyhound Racing than it takes in, in tax revenue. So it's a loss leader financially. We know dogs are dying. Dogs are confined up to 23 hours every day in their wire cages. That are barely big enough for them to stand up. The larger males, you know, it's really tight. Some of the smaller females have a little more room, but they're not roomy. And we know that one dies every three days on a track, one every three days on average in Florida. And we know that they're injured. They get injured fairly frequently. Although the industry fought us for two, three years, actually, we ran an injury reporting bill and it uh, failed because the industry opposed it. But we did pass an ordinance in one county with one track. And on one track, since May of 2017, there have been almost 90 injuries and 65 broken bones and, and several deaths, just in one. So we know they're being injured, but we don't have a statewide number for injuries. But all things considered, it's clearly, you know, you're putting them in harm's way. And it, this is not, not the case. It's very different than horse racing. But what we found that a lot of people, the industry would use scare tactics to say, well, what's going to happen to other dogs? And they're treated well. And, and the adoption groups, in order to get dogs from the industry, must be pro-racing or at least neutral. So if, an, if you're an adoption group, you have to, if they supported Amendment 13, they would no longer be a Greyhound adoption group because they would no longer get Greyhounds. They had to be pro-racing on the other side. So many would come to me and say, well, I know a Greyhound adoption group down the road or in my town and they oppose. Well, surely this can't be a good measure if the Greyhound people are, you know, are opposing the adoption folks. But that's why in order to get the dogs, they have to be on the pro-racing side. But we know that the voters clearly are on, on the side of the dogs and getting them out of harm's way. I mean, this is such an antiquated practice. Florida was the first state to legalize it in 1931. Now it's going on illegally elsewhere. And I know there were several tracks in California prior to that, but legally Florida was the first state. And we've really been the hub or the biggest state with the most tracks. So although they've changed, I actually pulled Greyhound from a track here in North Florida. It's no longer in existence, but for many years, and they are amazing, amazing dogs, wonderful, wonderful pets. So I know firsthand and they're, you know, they're always for adoption that today and, and even before Amendment 13 was created or born, there are adoption groups all over the country that pull from the states that still have Greyhound racing. 
and they make amazing pets. So we always encourage that. And certainly now they'll be in the coming years, there'll be more and they they make wonderful companions. So I highly recommend them. I have to tell you, my heart broke when I heard you say up to 23 hours a day in a cage. I mean, that's something that I just cannot even wrap my head around for these gentle dogs. I mean, they're so gentle. They're so goofy. Like I said, I don't have one, but I've spent plenty of time around them. And they're just, they have such unique personalities. Like you said, they're amazing companions. And for them to be living this life of confinement is just heartbreaking. It is very sad and muzzled. Most of the time they're muzzled. Oh my God. Touched on, on the drug issue or the 4D meat issue but their life is mostly in cages and it's it's not humane clearly it's not humane and that's from the industry itself on the time i mean they have several turnouts a day but it's not a life that you and i would want for for your dog for any dog and this is why we're so excited and the phase out is important so it's not all at once and we're you know starting january 1 this year tracks can decouple which is again just going back to what i said earlier that was what we were looking for in the legislature for so many years we worked to pass decoupling so it would give them the option some tracks may stop racing the dogs sooner earlier this year while the others may go to the end of 2020 which is best because that spaces out the dogs who will who will be open you know up for adoption and that right. that makes the most sense so we're, we're looking forward to that and the industry clearly doesn't like us very much and that's we understand that but we hope that in the in the months and years to come that they will accept our help because we would like to help very much with the placement and assistance with the greyhounds finding their their loving homes but we'll continue to offer and and hope that they will accept our help so uh, yeah i mean one of the other things that i think you sent me on one of the fact sheets is that there's uh, some significant drug issues with yeah. these dogs can you talk a little bit about that because that, that was something i had never heard of or even thought of before just offhand in the last decade there have been over 500 drug positives on florida tracks and there have been 73 cocaine positives there it's rampant. And this is the dogs. I mean, this is the, yes. the people are giving these dogs yes. drugs. Yes. And, and the industry will say, it's hard to say this with a straight face, that that is from the hands of the trainers, that cocaine oh is money God. everywhere. If that were the case, all of our dogs would be, you know, it's just ludicrous, but that it's coming from money in the hands of the trainers and such. But yes, they do periodic testing and there've been several drug positives. One dog, Flicka, tested positive for cocaine seven times. Seven times. This is for what? To help them be more, to be faster? I mean, what's the right. goal with these drugs? Sure. I mean, well, I mean, it's illegal with human athletes, right? I mean, yeah. yes, make them faster. Yes, it is. And there's other drugs that lidocaine, novocaine, this other odd named, you know, strange, you know, oxycodone, and then some other strangely named drugs that are, are less well known. But they are drugged. And in fact, the industry sued the state agency that regulates to throw out not just the, some of the positive tests, but the whole drug testing process. I mean, I kid you not, in last session, legislature, they circulated a bill. It didn't become a bill, but they circulated language shopping for a sponsor to allow trace amounts of cocaine. Totally insane. Again, Unbelievable. get off the ground. But <laughs> that just shows you that, I mean, it really belongs back in the 19, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s. I mean, in 2018, people love dogs. We know better. And, yeah, and they're family. families, right? I mean, this is such an antiquated, it's really horrifying to think it took us this long. We're grateful and thrilled and so glad we, we made it to the finish line. And this will be, you know, ending in two years. But at the same time, you think this should have been done a long time ago because it's such an antiquated practice. It just has no use and no place in 2018 with dogs being harmed, the loss, you know, financially. It's just, it's really a throwback. So we're thrilled and uh, and certainly will be, I will probably wind up adopting a greyhound as well uh, <laughs> because I love them and have had some before and uh, 
and look forward to that. Well, let's talk about that for a minute. So what can we tell our listeners about what to expect? I mean, I don't know how much you know about my background. I come from the animal welfare space. I was at the Pennsylvania SPCA. I was involved with humane law enforcement there. We didn't do anything with greyhounds. Although I do remember a few cases where greyhounds were involved and they were just transport issues. But that's a story for another time. (laughs) So, but anyways, you know, people are adopting pets and, you know, they want to know, especially pets that are coming out of less than stellar environments. They want to know what to expect. And I think I think greyhounds, you know, bring, especially coming out of an environment like this, they're going to come with their own set of challenges. Can you talk a little bit about what you would recommend to people who are thinking about adopting a greyhound and what to expect? Absolutely. And I have a good perspective because I've been volunteering and fostering with my local animal services for about 15 years. And I pulled greyhounds from right from the track. So they're very different. And my old oldest dog would have a very different reaction to the greyhounds versus another dog because all very positive, but different. The greyhounds have not learned even just getting them into the car to jump into the car like most dogs do, or those that are afraid, you assist them in and help them feel more comfortable. But it's just all new. Now they they know how to get into their cages and into a hauler, of course, because most dogs are bred in Kansas, raised elsewhere and transported here to Florida. So they're very familiar with the haulers. But and then in a home environment, you know, stairs, I put stickers on my glass doors and on several of the windows because they would walk right into them, having no idea it was a sliding glass door. And, you know, things like the TV noises were all new, all very new. It was a scary but exciting and positive experience getting them acclimated to real life out of the kennel, out of the kennel compound. And their feet are very sensitive. And, you know, most people think that they need a farm. I don't have a giant farm with acres and acres. No, no, they're amazing dogs for for people who live in apartments. You know, just like any dog, they need nice leash walks and loving time with their companion, with their human companions. But they don't need to have a farm and to run miles and miles. That's just a misunderstanding. They're actually quite lazy and very affectionate and loving and gentle. So they're different in that sense. But so what to expect, a lot of the adoption groups do all of that, you know, ahead of time for the adopter. I just took them straight from the track. So the adoption groups get them acclimated to real life, get them a little more, you know, away from the track and used to the comforts of home, like a wonderful dog bed and squeaky toys, you know, the really fun things. So that's, they're very gentle and they often just get along beautifully with other dogs. Some are safe with cats, some are not. Obviously, just like any dog, you would want to be careful on on that and protect your cats, but that's common sense. But they're really gentle and walk beautifully on the leash. I rave about them, especially if you have other other dogs, because they do get along so well. They've been housed and, and lived with other dogs their whole lives. So that's a real plus in terms of adopting a greyhound or two, because they that's another thing is sometimes they do well in adopting two at a time. Yeah, I think that was all really great information. Thank you. And I love that you mentioned that they're lazy because I, you know, frequently in in my line of work now, people will say, oh, I live in an apartment. I can't have a big dog. And I'm always like, what? No, you want a big dog. You you don't want to have to be going up and down the steps to potty a chihuahua 10 times a day. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, right. The Greyhound's great. I mean, yes, take them long walks, but you know, you're talking two, three, four walks a day. So, uh, so they make amazing apartment dogs. They make, actually, they make amazing dogs for almost anywhere. But if you're out there listening and you really want to be able to help these dogs that have had everything stacked against them up until now when they when Kate came on the scene and, and the rest of the folks out there working for uh, Amendment 13. If you want to help one of these dogs, look and go online, check out the Greyhound adoption agencies that are um, in Florida, but also all over the country, and consider making now the time to adopt because I've seen some different statistics, and Kate, maybe you can clarify, but it, it seems like they're saying anywhere from eight to 10,000 dogs that are going to be looking for homes between now and the end of 2020. Is that right? 
Well, I think it'll be less than that. We think there are about 10,000 bred annually. That's a number that we've used floating out there. And at one time, there were about 8,000 in the tracks in Florida. But we think as some have pared down and having fewer dogs, it's a little less than that. But they're not required to tell the exact number. And it's fluid, right? Because it right. Race, a dog's racing career is just under two years on average. So they, they come to Florida or come to race about 18 months. And before their fourth birthday, they're gone usually on average. So their racing careers are fairly short. But we think there's about, we've heard numbers from between four and eight. So it, it's probably somewhere in the middle. But again, it's fluid and will depend on what tracks do. A few will wind it down uh, early in 2019, while others will go till the end of 2020. But either way, and, and I you know suggest people look on any of the sites, you know the search sites to find, you know search by breed, because there are groups all over the country and not just in Florida and see certainly there'll be there's some right now that maybe have nothing to do with 13. One of our talking points of the campaign was the opposition would say what's going to happen to all the dogs? Well if Amendment 13 passed or failed the dogs that were in the tracks right now or during the campaign would need to find homes either way because the turnover was fairly quick. So this was an end of the cycle so to speak. So uh, they do turn over in the industry fairly quickly again less than two years. So there's always a need for them to find homes. So definitely highly recommend uh, finding a Greyhound adoption group near you and uh, bring a loving Greyhound into your home. Well, Kate, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much. Crystal, I think you're still with us. Thank you as well. You both have shared so much valuable information with the listeners and with me. I feel like I've been educated and I'm equipped now to go out there and spread the word about the good work that the Humane Society of the United States is doing and the amazing successes you've experienced with Amendment 13 and Proposition 12. Kudos to both of you and thank you from the bottom of my heart. And I know everyone listening, if they could say it, they'd be saying thank you too. And I know all of the farm animals in California and the greyhounds in Florida would also be saying thank you. Your work is just absolutely critical as we move forward in the field of animal welfare. If you have any questions about our show or have a suggestion for a guest or topic, please email me at Angela at PetLifeRadio.com. I also encourage you to subscribe to Take Me Home on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you again to our guests, Crystal Moreland and Kate McFall. Crystal is the California State Director and Kate is the Florida State Director for the Humane Society of the United States. Also, a big thanks to Mark Winter, our producer, for making the show possible. I look forward to talking with you next week. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.